Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm Haile Debas and I'm the director of the UC Global Health Institute. Uh, and I want to welcome all of you to this meeting. This is the second UC Global Health Day. Uh, this year's UC Global Health Day is presented by UC Global Health Institute in partnership with the Berkeley Center for Global Public Health led by Dr. Eva Harris, by the Berkeley Bixby Center for Population Health and Sustainability, and led by its founder and director, Professor Malcolm Potts, and by the North California International Health Interest Group, led by its founder, Dr. Tom Hall. Last year's meeting, the first UC Global Health Day, was hosted by Chancellor Michael Drake at UC Irvine and was a great success. This, year's, this year, UCGHI is most grateful to Dean Steve Shortell and UC Berkeley for hosting today's meeting. If last year's meeting was unqualified success, this year's meeting promises to be an even greater success. Twice as many people have registered in, in today's meeting and registration had to be stopped when we reached the maximum of 400. I am delighted to see that all 10 UC campuses are represented in the program. In addition, we have attendees from several non-UC schools and organizations, including Stanford, University of San Francisco, Harvard, Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente, the CDC, USAID, and many more. Warm welcome to all of you. UC Global Health, the UC Global Health Institute was launched in 2009 as a UC-wide interdisciplinary institute that would harness the enormous expertise that resides in the faculty, trainees, and students in all the 10 campuses of the university. It has three centers of expertise, one health led by UC Davis in the north and UC Riverside in the south, migration and health led by UC San Diego in the south and UC Davis in the north, and women's health and empowerment led by UCSF in the north and UCLA in the south. The purpose of the annual UC Global Health Day 
is to showcase the research and education contributions of not only these three uh, centers of UCGHI, but also those of faculty and students in all 10 campuses. There are several people I must thank for putting on this program. Dr. Tom Coates, co-director of UCGHI and professor of medicine and director of the UCLA Center for Global Health, could not be here today for unavoidable reasons. Tom and Eva Harris co-chaired the program committee for this meeting, and we owe them uh, and their committee members a great debt of gratitude. This meeting could not have been the great meeting it promises to be uh, were it not for the le leadership and contribution of Professor Malcolm Potts and Dr. Martha Campbell uh, and the able assistance of Claire Norris. We are deeply indebted to Malcolm and the UC Berkeley Bixby Center for inviting our two keynote speakers, Sir John Salston, the 2002 Nobel Laureate in Physiology or Medicine, and Dr. Elia Misiapathy Zulu, Director of the African Institute for Development Policy in Nairobi, Kenya. I want to welcome Sir John and Dr. Zulu and thank them for traveling so far to honor and grace us with their presence. I also want to thank the UCGHI leadership and staff, particularly Chuck Smuckler and Catherine Lee from the UCSF Global Health Sciences. Catherine did most of the work organizing this meeting in meticulous detail, and I'd ask that we recognize her contributions. <laughs> Finally, we're most grateful to Mrs. Kathy Swan and the Eustace, the Eustace Kwan Family Foundation whose generous gift has enabled many students to travel to this conference. Let me now introduce two leaders of UC who will make opening remarks. First, Dr. Stephen Shortell, the Dean of the UC Berkeley School of Public Health, the Blue Cross Distinguished Professor of Health Policy and Management, and a leading expert on organized health delivery systems in the United States. Steve is a member of the executive committee of the UC Global Health Institute and is our host today. After him, Dr. John Stobo, Jack Stobo as we call him, will speak. Dr. Stobo is the Senior Vice President for Health Sciences and End Services of the University of California, 
He chairs both the board of directors and the executive committee of the UC Global Health Institute. UCGHI reports to him, and we're most grateful for his continued leadership and support. I now invite uh, Dean Shortel to give his remarks. Thank you, Holly, very much. And I also want to extend my welcome on behalf of uh, Chancellor Bergenau and all of us here on the Berkeley campus uh, to this wonderful event. This is the second annual uh, Global Health Day, as uh, Haile has said, and it's just terrific that all of you are filling up these seats. I think we had to move this venue about two or three times in order to accommodate uh, the growing, uh, growing attendance. I also want to thank all of you for all the work that you do uh, every day, you know, the work of our students, our staff, include the staff, our faculty, obviously, uh, to improve health throughout the globe. It's a huge challenge. But, but we have to do better. We have to do more. Uh, the challenges are growing day by day. And it is my hope that this conference, in this conference, we can exchange knowledge, uh, discussion, uh, and come up with some new ideas and fresh approaches as well as continuing approaches that are going to take our impact to the next level because we really have to take what we're doing individually and collectively on our various campuses and across campuses to have a greater impact. The problems are intractable. We absolutely know the problems. Okay? Uh, but I also think there's hope. And very briefly, I just want to share with you a little bit of data, a few statistics that I think give us hope. For example, between 1962 and the year 2002, there was an increase in life expectancy in the Middle East and North Africa of 21 years. In 1960, the survival rate of children under five years old in sub-Saharan Africa was 73% in 1960. It's now 85%. Okay? We'd hope for more, but it's, as we like to say, directionally correct. Immunization rates for the world's children, newborns, against six prevalent childhood diseases in 2000 was 80%, up from 5% in 1974. We know the importance of education to health, enrollment in primary school worldwide in 2002 is now 87%, up from 47% in the 1950s. Literacy rates in sub-Saharan Africa in 2000 is now at 61%, and in 1970, that was only 28%. The global average ratio of female to male literacy in 2000 is now 80%. Female to male literacy ratio is now 80%, up from 59% in 1970. And politically... 
one of our institutes is dealing with women in empowerment. The seats held by women in national parliament worldwide in 2006 is now 16%. That's a paltry number. But in 1990, it was only 10%. So there is hope. Certainly a lot more that needs to be done, but there is hope. And I think some of the principles as we pursue our discussions today have also been outlined here in the U.S. with some of our own global health strategies, and I just want to briefly mention uh, six of them here. Using evidence-based knowledge to inform decisions. We have to generate the evidence. Leveraging strengths through partnerships. It's only going to get done through partnerships, and we need to be smarter about how to build and sustain effective partnerships over time. Responding to local needs. We don't know what all the problems are. We know in the abstract statistics, but until you get on the ground and understand the context and get a feel for the problems, you really are not going to be able to have much of an impact. Ensuring a lasting, measurable impact. Implementation issues, things don't fall off, the needle doesn't go back, how to sustain the impact over time. Emphasizing prevention, we're preaching to the choir here. And above all, improving equity of health in all that we do. So I, I think we'll see these principles operating today in our discussions. I certainly hope so. Uh, once again, I want to welcome you to Berkeley. And uh, thank you all for being here. And I'm now going to turn over the podium to Dr. Stobel. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. It's a really a pleasure to be here today and have the opportunity to welcome you to this uh, second uh, annual event. And as Heidi said, I know it will be uh, even more successful than our, than our first. Uh, just before, while we were staying outside having coffee, we were talking to a couple of people who did their undergraduate uh, days here. We were commenting on the uh, auditorium, and it reminded me of a time when I was at UCSF uh, from 1976 to 85 and involved in research in immunology. And at UCSF, there is an auditorium like this called Tolan Hall, which goes up almost at a 20 or 30-degree angle. And I was up in the podium getting ready to give a presentation and playing with the microphone that kept cutting in and out. So I played with it a little bit and looked up and saw my fellow sitting in the top row way in the back. And I said, Art, can you hear me up there? And he yelled back. He said, yes, I can, but I'd be willing to change places with anybody who can't. <laughs> So, you know, in this time of constrained and very precious resources, we at UC System are always looking for a way to leverage uh, these resources. Uh, and the uh, UC Institute of Global Health, uh, in that context, serves as a model and a prototype for the paradigm of how to leverage resources by doing things system-wide. While we have an increasing number of activities through the UC system that involve one or two or three, or in some cases, uh, five or seven campuses, UC Global Health is the only one that involves all 10 campuses. And it brings together strength, not only in the traditional areas of health, but also in areas related to agriculture, clean water, veterinary medicine, and other areas that exist throughout our 10 campuses that can bring enormous strength to issues related to population, medicine, uh, and uh, global health. Indeed, UC Institute of Global Health truly represents something in which the total of what has been created 
far exceeds the sum of the individual contributions. And for that, I congratulate all of you. So it's a pleasure to be here today. I know you have uh, what will be a very successful and rewarding program, uh, and enjoy the day. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Malcolm Potts, and I have the pleasure of directing the Bixby Center for Population, Health, and Sustainability. The theme of this morning's plenary sessions is population and health. Our canvas is huge, and the picture is rather sinister. Individuals cannot be healthy if they live in an unhealthy world, and much of our world is extremely sick. The world is more deeply divided, both demographically and economically, than it has ever been in the 200,000-year history of this big-brained, competitive, violent primate that we are. Half the world has access to modern contraception and safe abortion. People like us are rich and healthy and live a long time. We are also committed, or seem to be committed, to unsustainable levels of consumption. A fifth of the world lives in abject poverty and hasn't yet begun to benefit from the many achievements that Steve just mentioned. Over 90% of the future population growth will come from the world's least developed countries. Countries that sometimes treat women in atrocious ways and where family planning is difficult to obtain. We evolved in small hunter-gatherer bands and we're not really prepared to comprehend what a billion, let alone 7 billion, or 10 billion, or 15 billion, really means. If I tell you, and this is true, that the population of China today is the same as the population of the whole world in 1939, I was a little boy then, will you go, wow? Or are you just numbed by numbers, that many of us are indeed numbed by numbers? And not surprisingly, politicians and even many scientists perceive population and family planning to be too controversial to discuss. Most economists are committed to perpetual growth of GDP, yet every biologist recognizes that such growth cannot continue, can't probably continue for very much longer. That is the bad news, but as Steve says, there's some good news. Attention is beginning to return, once again, to population and family planning. Along with vaccination, actually making family planning available is probably the single most powerful intervention that we have in low-resource settings in public health. It saves mothers' lives, it saves infant lives, slowing rapid population growth, accelerates economic development, it enables nations to get ahead in investing in education and health care. Uncontrolled rapid population growth leads to failed states like Somalia and wars like Darfur. In 2009, the three Bixby centres here at Berkeley and UCLA and UCSF held a meeting, a forum, on what the world is going to look like in 2050. That, in turn, led to a publication of the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society 
entitled The Impact of Population Growth on Tomorrow's World. It was volume 364 and has been one volume every year since the Royal Society was, was founded. That stimulated the then President of the Royal Society, Lord Martin Rees, to set up a working group on people and the planet. And that is the working group that Sir John Sulston chairs. But how does any working group navigate the complex interactions between population factor, consumption, climate change, voluntary family planning, women's empowerment, and human well-being? For example, economic growth is essential to bring people out of abject poverty, but it contributes to a, a, a sick planet with global warming. The Royal Society had to find a superb scientist with a compelling sense of social justice to chair the People and the Planet Working Group. And they chose the best person they could, Sir John Sulston. John, welcome. Thank you for coming halfway around the world. As Haile Debas told us, John shared the Nobel Prize for his work in on genetic uh, regulation of organ development and programmed cell death. To be a Nobel Prize winning bench scientist is one thing. But John also became an extremely effective and much-loved administrator of the Sanger Centre in Cambridge, which did the majority of the heavy lifting on the Human Genome Project. And John fought passionately and successfully to prevent the commercialisation of the human genome. That by itself is a mega achievement for any one person. And John once wrote that scientists have to join politicians in deciding the sort of world we want to live in. And I think that's very much what is driving um, all of us in this room and um, our interest in international health. Following John's talk, we have two stellar panellists. Professor Andola Prater is the scientific director of the Bixby Centre here at Berkeley. And it's very easy to introduce her because... Last week, The Lancet, a premier world uh, journal, had a full-page profile of Andola entitled Andola Prata, colon, Fighting for Women's Reproductive Health. Andola practiced medicine in her native country, Angola, during a civil war. She has degrees and diplomas in Spanish, French, and Portuguese and happens accidentally to speak Serbo-Croatian. She told The Lancet, it is worth fighting for what you believe in, And what Andola believes in is interventions that can be scaled up, thus reaching most women in need. Professor Jaime Sepulveda is the Executive Director of the UCSF Global Health Sciences. He's been a Senior Fellow at the Gates Foundation. And back in Mexico, Dr. Sepulveda was the Director General of Mexico's National Institute of Health, Dean of the National School of Public Health, Vice Minister of Health, the um, list goes on, I mean. So you can see we've got some outstanding uh, speakers, and um, John will speak for 25 minutes, then the two panellists uh, will uh, comment and share their insights. We want to try to make time for questions. Please keep your questions brief and to the point. This afternoon, there's a more informal system, uh, session with an opportunity to meet and talk to the two speakers. Um, I have two announcements. Uh, One is there's a red wallet left at the A to L uh, registration. The second is, as an anatomist, I know we all have kidneys, and if you want to find the restrooms, it's rather difficult. You have to go along 
go downstairs and come back. Basically, they're underneath where we were, where we were having coffee. So, John, can I invite you to come and join us at this table? Thank you. Thank you very much, Malcolm. It's a great pleasure to be here. Shall I just step forward? Yes, there we are. Thanks. Um, and uh, it's extremely important, the topic. Now, I, um, as Malcolm indicated, um, chair of, of the working group, the um, Royal Society, um, and the title People in the Planet is supposed to express uh, the notion that people matter and the planet matters, and we have to sort it out. I shall be speaking for myself around the general subject of the report, so because this is still in progress, although we hope it will be finished very soon. Uh, but it's much easier if I speak as myself and simply give the, 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 the chair the, 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 uh, the sort of frame of reference. And I'm going to begin, as, as indicated by the, by the title, with human well-being, which was uh, the, the, the components of human well-being were... were defined by the Millennium, millennium uh, Assessment as freedom, security, health, material resources, and social relations. Health is there. Health, I think, has a very particular place in human well-being in that all the other components, in one way or another, feed into it. Uh, it's hard to imagine having good health. But, of course, then health uh, without them. But, on the other hand, health also feeds into the others. And so it does have a very yin-yang relationship with human well-being, uh, which is why um, it is so much sought after, and people are willing to spend enormous resources on it. And that's something I shall come to later, about how much resource really is going in and whether it's appropriate. The other thing to note on this list is that the material resources come from the environment, ultimately, and also that that is the, going to be the major parameter in terms of what well-being means to different people. If you're extremely poorly off, if you're starving, uh, then really the material resource of food is going to be your main issue. As you become better off, you can pay more and more attention to the, to the, to the other things. But of course, even the poorest off uh, do, can suffer very badly, for example, from lack of security. So these things are all important to, to everybody in various ways. Now, what I'm going to talk about, first of all, is the way that people are impacting us, collectively, humans, are impacting this environment we live in. And this graph, which has been running for a long time and gradually being extended, is that of carbon dioxide measured in the atmosphere. And the thing to notice is that it's a very clean curve. It has its annual fluctuation, but there's really no noise on this graph. Notice it's plotted with a zero way off. We're looking at quite a tiny amount. A lot of people draw attention to that and say, ah, in proportion, it's not very much extra CO2, is it? What are you all talking about? So does it actually matter? And the reason why climate change, global warming, is, has only in the last decade or so come to serious attention is precisely because of that. When you look at the... the uh, the, the, the corresponding plot over that period of time of the global air temperature, it's much noisier. Lots of room for denialists to say, ah, there's nothing much happening, we've seen it all before, these are tiny fluctuations. Look at the, the degrees centigrade scale in change. And yet, I'm afraid it's real. And in fact, 
in the last very last decade, we can see it real before our eyes as the ice caps melt. So those scientists in the IPCC, enormously strong group, who predicted what was going on before it was generally politically recognized, were right. And the reason I draw attention to these two pictures is that it's a big problem, actually, in many of the things we have to deal with, that everybody, after all, in a freedom-loving set of societies, wants to make their own decision on what's going on and what matters. But actually, more and more, as we interact more and more with the environment and have bigger and bigger effects on it through our ever-increasing powers, which we'll look through in a moment, because of all that, we've got to pay attention to these long-range predictions. So we have a real tussle, and you see it going on right now in the arguments deployed by the Republican primary, presidential, uh, the pri- the Republican primary for the presidential candidate. A denialist in that camp, of course. This is extraordinary, really, isn't it? <laughs> going beyond then climate as such, we are using, we have been impacting for a very long time, we've been using an enormous proportion of the planet's resources. And if you're running uh, either a household or a business and you're using up this proportion of your stock, you should be starting to get a bit worried about where the next bit's coming from. And yet, for a variety of reasons I want to explore during the next few minutes, we're not doing that sufficiently. We are sort of ignoring it, and what's happening is that it's having a great effect on our planet. When you look at the habitat that's been lost, again, turning to the the Millennium Assessment, when you look at the habitat that's been lost, that's the the white bit over to the right, that's that's the loss, the green bit is what still exists at the moment. What's going to happen over the next... 40 years to 2050. Well, one sort of habitat is actually projected to to improve slightly, to recover. All the others are going to show catastrophically increased losses. And along with those losses, even now and predicted further in the future, is an enormous extinction rate of the other species that occupy this planet with us. I think... We should not just be thinking about human well-being. We should be thinking also about the well-being of the planet and its other denizens. Now, you can, you can argue that in two ways. You can say, in a utilitarian way, that, of course, we do need to have the planet and all of these species that are being lost may well be useful to us in some way or another in the future. I mean, an obvious one, for example, is, 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 is trees and plants in tropical forests, many of which have not yet been explored and we know are going to deliver a steady stream of chemicals that are important to us in treating various diseases. That's the utilitarian argument. I would actually be among that probably minority group who say that as the transcendent thinking species on earth, we actually know what's going on, we have control, and we should accept responsibility for stewardship. But that's a philosophical difference. You can uh, take your choice either way. Now let's dissect this. Let's dissect it in the way that we look at what's happening per individual and what's happening to the uh, changes collectively. So we've got what individuals are doing and the result of how many individuals. So over the last century and a half, roughly speaking, our use of energy has increased 50-fold, and most of that increase, nearly all actually, has 
cause the emission of CO2 because it comes from fossil fuels. Hence the slides we've just been looking at showing the impact of CO2 on climate change. And where has that increase come from? Well, interestingly, it's come roughly equally from increase in human numbers and increase in per capita consumption. It's a curious thing that when you look at quite a number of, of, um, of, of different sorts of consumption, they seem to be going up more or less the same. Actually, now that the percentage increase of human population is declining, uh, consumption is beginning to, to, to look bigger. I don't know why they're sort of roughly in step. It's something to do with the way development has happened, but it's worked out that way so far. So this slide, simple as it is, in saying immediately, hey, I should be thinking about both these things. I should not be thinking about population or consumption, which is what many people try to do. I should be thinking about them both. So that tells us that right away. So now let's look at the two components in a little more detail. This slide, I, I, this, this picture I rather like because we combine the, the percentage increase in human population, which is the black line going down the middle, which obviously is declining very satisfactorily. Remember, we're looking globally at this point. This is everybody. So it peaked actually in the 1960s, the, the, um, the percentage increase. But the absolute increase is shown by the bars. So each of those bars is the number of people additionally added to the Earth's population in each decade. And you can see it's running at the moment around about 800 million. So we add another billion every, every 12 years. But it's, we're more or less on the declining point. We're just going over the top. It's noisy. It goes up a bit from year to year, but it's mostly the, the, the censuses probably. But it's predicted very strongly to decline. But mostly in the blue bit at the bottom, which are the developed countries, and followed closely by the middle developing countries, the, the ready brown part. The green bars are actually increasing. And that's the part that Malcolm just alluded to. These are the people with the least resources, very badly off, fertility is still high, the increase is still going up, the absolute increase. That is a problem, and when you put it all together, we also, of course, have a global uh, problem of continued consumption due to the people. This is a, a, a map just showing where uh, the people live who, who are very, very fertile. There's lots of sub-Saharan Africa, of course, and then we have over in, in Afghanistan... Uh, and so on, but the, the most developed countries don't have much population increase. This is why it's so dangerous to separate the two, because quite a lot of people are looking at that and they're saying, oh, well, you know, it's not our problem. But it is our problem, and we can do something about it. I think I needn't say much about this. This is just to emphasize that the, these are the various UN projections according to various scenarios. The middle line the one that's just about flattening off is the most likely. But we could, go, we could go faster in terms of the increased human population, and we would benefit, we and the planet would benefit if we did so. But the point is that even to go that much, you've got to do something about it. That's why the work that's being done by the Bixby Foundation and lots of other um, institutes and, and, and people contributing to this problem are keeping us away from that line going up indefinitely, because that's what would happen if we just went on exactly as we are at the moment. It requires this effort to, to go on putting uh, the, 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 the unmet need, to satisfy the unmet need, so that people can, in fact, reduce their fertility at a sensible rate. Now let's turn to the other side, to consumption. 
And here, looking at the right-hand panel, first of all, if you would, a very stark distinction between the most developed countries, a billion or so people at the top, the blue line, going along very nicely with a high energy consumption. Uh, by the way, measured by carbon dioxide, as I explained, these are more or less equivalent for plotting purposes. High and more or less steady. Look at the green line at the bottom. That's the least developed countries. They contributed a negligible amount, those people, to the total burden on the planet in terms of CO2 and in terms of energy use. But they should have the expectation of leading lives just as good as those in the most developed countries. So there's another kind of unmet need here, an unmet need for consumption, which is going to hit in the future. In between, you have the red line, where there is rising, rising energy use, and these are the middle developing countries, the emerging economies, China, India, Brazil, and so on. And if you look over on the left-hand side, you see also their per capita CO2 and energy use is going up very steeply. I'm sorry, the, the, the total, I beg your pardon, the, the per capita is over there. This is the total. This is where you're multiplying the numbers on the left of the, of the people by the, by, the, by the consumption. Now, one other thing to point out about that middle line is that not all of that energy is theirs or their CO2 emissions. Quite a lot of it ought to be added, an increasing amount ought to be added to the blue line. Why is that? It's because energy-intensive manufacturing is declining in the most developed countries. And it's being exported, particularly to China and to the middle developing countries. And we talk about then the goods that we import, we in the West import from there, as having embedded energy, having embedded CO2. It means that it's really our debt, if you like, to the planet. Our, as Westerners, it's, it's our debt, not theirs but it doesn't show on the charts of the consumption. So what we're seeing here now is very starkly the inequality, the unfairness, and the need to change in the future what's going on. And we can look at it very quickly in a different way using the footprinting system for measurement where you're putting in not only energy, but the total uh, consumption in terms of load on the planet, now the requirement for food and water, as well as emission of waste and the need for energy. And you can see again the red line at the top is now an increasing footprint per capita, this is, of the, of the most developed countries. And down at the bottom you see a gradually increasing uh, consumption footprint, I'm sorry, by the, by the middle developing countries. It's actually a declining footprint of the least developed countries. So again, great inequality. So from what I've been saying so far, I hope with these little snippets, these little cameos, it should be very clear that any discussion we have about the planet, the environment, whatever, should include both population and consumption. And yet it doesn't. For 20 years or so, population has really been off the international agenda that discusses these matters. Big meetings have come and gone without mentioning population. It's very doubtful to what extent it will be measured. Uh, it will be mentioned in the Rio Earth Summit, though we certainly hope it will be. I think probably it was triggered, first of all, by concerns about coercion, and a number of people have written it up as a major war. Matthew Connolly's book, for example, 
uh, it talks about it as a war between those who wanted to reduce population and those who, according to him, have the moral high ground of not wanting to do anything about it. Actually, when I say reducing population, it's simply a matter, as I say, of providing people with the means to, to limit their family size should they so wish. That's all that needs to be done. He saw that as coercion, and many other people do. China is cited as being a problem, and so on and so on. I think more and more strongly as well, though, is the perception it's not a problem. And, of course, underlying many of these issues, you have religious and cultural sensitivities, which have to be dealt with in a very a sensitive way, obviously, but should not stand in the way of people who need to limit their family sizes. I was very interested in seeing some reports from Niger, which we'll look at again in a moment, uh, about the way in which imams are joining with mothers who have starving children to say, yes, it would be a pretty good idea if you, if you limited your, your rate of childbearing. So that's, that's a great hope. So these are urgent actions and obvious from all of this. Lifting the poorest billion out of poverty... But the other side of that coin is stabilizing and reducing material consumption by the most developed and the emerging economies by increasing efficiencies and reducing the, the, uh, the outputs of, of damaging waste like carbon dioxide, which can be done with, with sufficient investment. At the same time, to continue the downward trajectory of fertility. And education has been mentioned Already, I just am emphasizing that yet again, but right through to secondary education, the more that can be done, the more it can be done with equal opportunities, very importantly for girls as well as boys, and the sooner, the better. Because then people can think about their destinies and a position to do something about it, rather than being forced into a life that they don't really want. I think these demographic pyramids, I guess many of you are totally familiar with this, but anybody who isn't, what you do is to, in each of these, you can see the date at the top, they're from the UN pages. Um, this is career, you've got 1950, 2010, 2050, and 2100. Each line shows males on the left on the, and, and females on the right over um, five-year cohorts right the way through. If the line is broad, you have a lot of people in that cohort. So you can see what career has done. Uh, it's very rapidly reduced its fertility between uh, 1950 and 2010 and produced a bulge. This is, and this has been very well exploited in the sense that people had jobs, the economy was, was allowed to expand during that time and did very well. And now they will gradually face this bulge rising through the age groups. So this works, this is a tremendous thing if you can plan for it and you can have the education and the jobs for the youth bulge coming through. In the same way, it's important to plan for migration being done properly, for the integration of communities, urbanisation to be done in a way where you develop infrastructure and services as you go along uh, rather than allowing slums to happen, and dealing with ageing populations. Nothing to be fearful of, provided we're willing to distribute resources in an even-handed way and to adapt our economies accordingly. Japan, uh, as you see from these demographics, is, is, is facing right now the most extreme case of an ageing population to be dealt with. And the other end of the scale, we have Niger, which has not even begun the reduction of fertility, or only to a very limited extent, and has an indefinite 
overwhelming number of people coming in without sufficient services to educate them or keep up. Now, in considering how the most developed, the richest countries, react to these various statistics, I think it's very helpful to look at these two charts, this one and the next one. This plots life expectancy for a large number of countries against emissions of CO2. And we shall see, we can get a number of curves that look very much in the same shape, a sort of inverted L. And what you'll see is a lot of countries up the left-hand side, very low emissions and rather low life expectancy. And we're using life expectancy as a very crude, but on the other hand, very easily measurable surrogate for health. When you look along the top, we've got varying life expectancies, and people are very much the same as you go beyond a, an emission of five tons of CO2 or so. There are other factors, of course. And you can see some very high emitters that have lower life expectancy overall than some lower emitters on the left. If we plot income on the bottom, we get almost the same thing, a little bit of, of a rake now on the top. But nevertheless, you see that people right on, out on the, on the far end in terms of income are no better off in terms of life expectancy than some people further back. What this is telling us, and people talk quite a lot about well-being and happiness in this regard, well, these are hard things to measure, this is one parameter going into those sorts of those, uh, considerations. What this is doing is telling us that actually we don't need all this extra money and energy use and so on in order to be happy and healthy and so on. Just need to get organized in a way that we don't need so much. And so for that reason, there is at the moment quite a, 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 a heat, a, um, an anxious or, or vigorous search for alternative measures. You see, the trouble is, with, with GDP, gross national product, just done in terms of money, is that you only count the things you're producing. Curiously, with GDP, if you have a really bad road accident, rather than the road running smoothly, it will actually increase GDP, because you'll lose a lot of vehicles, you'll have to make them again, you have to clear up the mess. All of that is a lot of money for the people doing it all. It will add to GDP. Similarly, with the natural environment, we don't cost it. So ideally, we should have, or indeed, not ideally, but we absolutely need to have alternative indices which account for national capital, that measure real wealth, what we've really achieved, rather than just cleaning up the messes we're making. But GDP is the currently accepted standard, and it's leading to this competitive growth of nation with nation and driving consumption by the citizens. What do our leaders say when we're in recession? Do they say, save money, stay at home, dig the garden and grow your own potatoes? No, they do not. They say, go shopping. <laughs> Drive the economy. Competitive growth, increased GDP is our mantra. And how we're going to wean ourselves off it, we do not know. But we must do, because it's driving the wrong things. It's giving us the wrong indices. As I come to the end, I just want to show um, a couple of slides about the delivery of health itself. The most important thing about health is infrastructure. Water, food, housing, sewage. If you get those right, then you're going to be in very much better health than if you have medicines. And I think a lot of what we're talking about here today is, is dealing with that, with dealing with the population aspects for making all that possible. I think that we should be delivering medicines in an equitable way. That means some kind of social system. 
He thinks it's very important that the global health service of the future, in fact, moves towards that. It's also important that the, the work we do scientifically actually delivers what's needed. And it's a scandal that the way we've been running biomedical research for the last 20 or 30 years has directed us away from most of the disease burdens of the world, the tropical diseases, the so-called neglected diseases now, and towards cures for things that actually are not that big a deal but are going into rich markets. And moving on from that situation, we have a number of, of ways forward. We have the public-private partnerships um, of, of, of companies mix, uh, coming in with, with foundations and institutes and labs. They have to be driven by charitable money. It cannot be driven by the market. The Gates Foundation is particularly important in this. Uh, we, we also need government money going into this. The right kind of treaties, the right kind of licensing, and the role of civil society, the NGOs and the universities... And one of my little hobby horses is that universities ought to regard themselves as NGOs. And there's actually a, a case in point going on right now, I believe, with the University of California. The Berkeley campus has been rather good on delivering humanitarian licensing for its products, like the artemisinin pathway, for example. And that, what that means is to make sure that the product comes out, that comes out at the end is affordable by the poorest people of the world. This needs to be signed up to, and the, the student movement, Universities Alive for Essential Medicines, for example, is trying to ensure that, that whatever patenting system, the new patenting system the UC puts in place, is, is, is of a humanitarian licensing kind. I just wanted to mention it today because I think it's extremely relevant to the global health, and I hope everybody will have a think about that and whether one cannot do better, and certainly that the, the initiative taken by the Berkeley campus won't get lost. And so I finish with this one. We need to plan to flourish. In a sense, it's easy to plan to survive, to plan for an incredibly unequal world where people are kept in their places and most people don't have enough and a few people get everything. Do we want that? I suspect not, at least not in this room. But do people everywhere want that? Well, they're not so sure. So actually, the business of stabilising population by 2100, which is sort of the mission, I would say, to get those very high fertility rates down to the extent that people want, which is very much, this should be feasible with effort and goodwill. What's more difficult is the bit I've just alluded to last, the prosperity for all, because it's politically challenging. Nobody wants to give up the prosperity they have. Nobody really even wants to give up their relative prosperity, because it's quite fun as a tourist, isn't it, being wealthier than the people you're going to visit. This is the kind of thing that's going to be quite hard to give up. But it's somehow or another, bit by bit, and I really do look to the younger people who have a different vision of the world from the old guys to sort of drive this agenda. But we do need, I'm quite convinced, we need escape from this competitive growth, the competitive growth between nations, and we need to look for alternative socio-economic models. There's an enormous, really important piece of economic work to be done. Some people are beginning it. Joseph Stieglitz and Marcia Sen reporting to Sarkozy, for example, the Commission uh, on Sustainable Development there. There are lots of little, little pinpricks going. It needs to be converted into a way that is going to be a win-win for the peoples of the world. At the moment, it's not. It's a luxury for do-gooders. We've got to change that. Thanks very much.
focus I think that was an extraordinary 25 minutes that defines the key problems of the 21st century, the problems that are going to face all the younger people in this room as they come to maturity and, and they have children. John said there's something we can do about it. And Andola Prata is going to tell us what we can do about it. Andola's passions inversely related to our height, so I'm going to push this little thing in. It's a great pleasure to be here today, and um, um, thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, Sir John, um, and all of uh, uh, our dean and, and all of the um, invited guests um, to this important UC Global Day. Um, what I'm going to try to do in the next seven to eight minutes um, is to uh, is to uh, look at the, some of the. Um, or sort of bring some discussions of the um, public health impacts or some of the interventions or at least one intervention that it's important to address one of the key issues that Sir John mentioned, um, which is the provision of family planning um, to women in need. So some of the important facts, just so we are all reminded, at what are we dealing with? We have... Um, a tremendous unmet need um, for family planning around the world, um, especially in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, more than in Asia and in, in other parts of the world. But there's always some unmet need in any given uh, country. There's millions of women um, that are not using contraception. And in the case of sub-Saharan Africa, we actually have more women in need of contraceptive methods than those using so that results in significant problems related to maternal health um, and also child health that we'll talk about a little later. But we have a tremendous amount of unsafe abortions um, that most of them in sub-Saharan Africa result in deaths. Um, and just overall, um, an enormous amount of deaths around the world that I mentioned here, 99% of those deaths come from developing countries. So we can see that there is a great need to reduce um, fertility, and family planning provision could be of great help to do all sorts of benefits, and I'm bringing here both the health-related benefits and the non-health-related benefits that are related to or important for the health benefits. Um, maternal health being one that I actually work uh, a lot and the very, very important. Please note that no one can, no woman can die or suffer for maternal complications if she doesn't get pregnant. 
So if she doesn't get pregnant, um, she will never be part of the pool of, of, of women that suffer from complications of pregnancy or childbirth, um, or even be subject to maternal death. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of unwanted pregnancies around the world. Uh, we also have good information, actually, that in countries with very high fertility, remember the map that Sir John mentioned, sort of all of the reds that you see from very high fertility, um, we can actually just with the family planning, just with the provision of family planning services, be able to reduce maternal mortality by close to 32%. So in terms of child health, it's also important to notice that family planning brings probably the most effective or the most efficacious way to space children. And spacing just alone um, is responsible for a lot of child deaths. So focusing on spacing could also reduce um, child mortality. And there are also other uh, ways where, for example, very good data that shows that uh, provision of family planning services is a, co a cost-effective way to reduce mother-to-child transmission of HIV. So the other ways to look at the, the, the sort of the benefits of family planning in health is that the fam by provision of with provision of family planning services, we achieve high contraceptive prevalence rates that then reduce birth rates. The savings in the fact that those births aren't there for us to, as society uh, uh, at large, to take care of in terms of immunization campaigns, in terms of malaria campaigns, including water and sanitation programs, um, those results in savings in the overall um, health care systems um, that uh, particularly, uh, specifically that the family planning provision can address. Other important non-health non -health benefits, but they also affect health, are bringing the empowerment of women. And I'm talking about the empowerment of the fact that women with the realistic access to contraception are able to make decisions and be able to decide when and how many children to have. And when I talk about effective or realistic access, I'm talking about the ability and related to empowerment, I'm talking about the ability of that woman to know, where, know the benefits of the methods be able to choose the method that is important to her at any given time in her reproductive life and be able to afford the method. I'm not talking about the facts that sometimes, for example, we go into a village and say, yeah, but the village has condoms and pills. But if women cannot use those condoms or don't have the money to access those pills, it's still not realistic access. Um, so on top of everything, the benefits of smaller families that also has impact on health and specifically also in education are very, very important. Um, I didn't mention here the benefits of smaller families for nutrition, but it is important to take that in consideration because especially doing the growth uh, 
phase of children, it's very, very important uh, to have good nutrition. So small families are capable to provide that for their children better than the ones that have larger families. Uh, let me allow to tell you something about my personal life. I'm coming from a family of six children, and every time I remember, especially when I was in, in middle school and was talking with my, my friends and, and colleagues, and, you know, why is our mother pregnant again? You know, we have one chicken a month for the family of six. The chicken only has two drumsticks, and everybody wants the drumstick. So I had to say, you know what? I'm the oldest. I was the wanted one. Drumstick is mine. But so, and our our parents used to say, oh, don't worry. When one eats six and eat, it is not true. Somebody is going to bed hungry every night. So it is important to have that in consideration. So apart from all of that, the, all of these benefits, um, with lower birth rates, we can slow population growth and then t- achieve or control the curve that uh, Sir John was mentioning and, and sort of a don't allow the curve to go higher. So what I wanted to show very quickly with the trends in modern contraceptive use is just to demonstrate to you that the progress has been there slow and in some places have stagnated. And what we can see or what you can see for these curves or what do they mean is a reflection of knowledge, access, affordability. In other words, in many countries of this world, especially those with a very high fertility, it is still hard to get family planning for a lot of women, especially poor women. And um, the example that I'm telling you of why this is important, why the provision, it's not a coercion, or by not, because we are responding to the needs of the women, is that if you look to these countries, examples of these countries that I'm showing in this graph, and in every, in every single year for which we have recent data from National Representative Demographic Health Service, you see that the, there is a difference between the total fertility rates or the average number of children that women have by the end of their reproductive life and the desire for number of children for that specific year. And the other important point, so we're just responding for couples to achieve their desired family size. The other important point to have into consideration is that that desired number is actually going down. So it's not a stable a, a target. It is a moving target. As um, sort of a, the f- fertility goes down at the population level, the desire to have fewer children also is going down. So the provision of family planning will make a significant impact. But how do we make family planning easy? Um, it's we know a lot today, but we are still um, sometimes. Or uh, sort of a stuck on the coercion issues, on the, uh, the assigning responsibility to culture and social and religious situations. And what I wanted to bring to your discussion is that yes. Some of these exist, we cannot ignore them, but at the same time, there are ways that we can work with the communities, that we can work with the religious groups to make them understand the impact and the benefits of family planning provision, especially for the health of mothers and children. 
Um, the one point that I wanted to make here is that access to safe abortion is also very important. And it is important because it can be a backup for method failure, but it's also important because rich women do have access to safe abortion regardless of the law. So it is an equity issue in public health, specifically maternal health. So if regardless of the law, rich women can have access to safe abortion, so should poor women too. Now, who can actually provide contraceptives? And to go over some of the issues that Sir John mentioned about coercion and things like that, we can use the community. So this is an example of Ethiopia where community-based distributors can actually learn how to provide all sorts of contraceptives, including injectable contraceptives, which are the fastest growing, most deserved or preferred method um, in rural Africa right now. And another example is working with the communities, including religious leaders. And this is a priest from Orthodox Christian priest for Northern Ethiopia that I personally taught how to provide injectable contraceptives to his community. And what he has in the background is doing the training. He was explaining to us what are the barriers for accessing family planning in his community that we needed to take care of. Please notice that in many, most of you actually know that in many places in sub-Saharan Africa, in any given community or in any given sort of a district or village, there are probably more churches than health facilities. So working with them actually brings up an important level of trust uh, and, and, the, and the understanding of the impact of a family planning program. The other thing that is important to have into consideration to uh, uh, sort of a, um, avoid coercion is let the woman purchase according to their, for, their, their ability to pay the method that they want. So the private sector at all levels, including at the village level, will be an important means to distribution, improve distribution and financing mechanisms um, to these women. And I was talking about social marketing, social franchising, community-based distribution combined with the social marketing uh, campaigns and many other things. So in summary, um, I just wanted to say that Family planning interventions can make a significant contribution to fertility decline and, then, and curb population, while at the same time can be provided within a human rights framework to women so that they can make decisions about their own fertility. The countries with the very high total fertility rates, they could tremendously benefit from a fertility transition sooner rather than later. Because as the longer it takes for the, the fertility to go down, the longer it will take for them to uh, slow population growth in a given country with the consequences that we talked about. It's important to note that even 0.5 on average children per woman makes a significant difference um, and is important to have into consideration. Um, so we want governments to intervene. We want civil society to intervene, including universities. We want the general public to intervene because it is what we've learned today um, or what we know today from all of the programs around the world, the tremendous benefits that family planning uh, bring for both the societies at large, um, individuals and communities is 
at this point undisputable. We can not want to give it, but we cannot overlook, even if we just focus on the health benefits to save both mothers' and children's lives. Thank you. I think Andola deserves her drumstick. Uh, What we're seeing today in this very compelling way is a concern for individuals, for individuals' rights, for individuals' autonomy, and putting that together uh, with with global uh, needs. So, uh, Jaime, you're going to speak from over there, um, from Mexico, and their experience. Thank you. Oh, can I ask the people at the back if they'd like to move forward? Um, Come with this. Spaces down here, don't, you don't need to stand at the back. Thank you, Malcolm, and good morning, everyone. I was um, invited to comment on global health aspects to Sir John's splendid conference. My intention here is to focus on the global responses to health and population issues at the supranational level and organize my comments around three questions. One, is the world responding to the needs in health and population globally? Two, what has the global health architecture addressed and accomplished effectively? And three, what has been insufficiently addressed by the global architecture and what reforms are therefore needed? To the question, is the world responding? My answer would be double. Yes, but not sufficiently. Yes, but not efficiently. That is to say, we need to do more and do better. In other words, the cliche that we need more money for health and more health for the money is a truism, but insufficiently practiced. To the second question, on what has the global health architecture achieved? There are many accomplishments to tell. When historians look back on how the world responded to AIDS, for example, they will describe an unprecedented global mobilization in response to one health problem. The creation of an independent UN program addressing a single disease, UNAIDS. The creation of a new global funding mechanism, the Global Fund. The creation of the largest bilateral health program in history, PEPFAR. Massive investments, public and private, in the development of new technologies, especially drugs, to combat HIV. This extraordinary mobilization of resources and efforts has borne fruit. For instance, 6.6 million people are now on ARV treatment, something that was seen as hopelessly unrealistic only a few years ago. There are other very many positive developments in the last decade in global health. For example, the creation of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has made a huge difference. 
more than $2 billion invested annually in improving health, focusing in vulnerable populations. The Gates Foundation is now the second largest donor to WHO, the main donor of Gavi, one of the main contributors to the Global Fund and other key institutions. Gavi, by the way, very dear to my heart, is one of the most exciting stories in global health. It is investing over $1 billion per year in providing all the new vaccines to children in low-income countries. Millions of lives have been saved as a consequence, giving kids a fair start in life. Much of the global health discourse, however, has been focused on saving lives, with good reason. But we also have to address the quality of the lives we save. And that calls for more and better family planning in the South and for reducing energy consumption in the North. There are clear shortcomings in the current global health architecture. In the case of HIV-AIDS, for example, we would not be asking for a further redoubling of global efforts if we could already smell victory. We continue to add 2.7 million people every year to the pool of 34 million people with HIV, living with HIV. And the only reason that the global total is not larger is that is 1.8 million people a year are still dying for lack of access to treatment. When and how would we know that we have turned the corner? If we continue, as we are today, with 1 million people initiating treatment and 2.7 million new infections per year, then we will stay in deficit. The tipping point will be the day when more people are started on therapy than are newly infected with HIV. Of course, there are two ways to achieve such a goal increase the number of people starting therapy or decrease the number of people becoming infected. We must do both. I think we're getting closer, but we're not there yet. Let me briefly describe three deficits in the global health architecture that I think have undermined efforts to improve health. One, a research deficit. In the case of HIV, existing research mechanisms are well adapted for the development of new biomedical technologies. And these should be continued and scaled, focusing on the development of a vaccine and effective microbicides. Existing mechanisms are not adequate for development of new behavioral interventions for harnessing the power of marketing that the private sector exploits so well, for learning how to do effective social mobilization, or for changing legal structural barriers. In the case of family planning, it is quite shocking that we have the same contraceptive technology invented 50 years ago. A second deficit I would like to highlight is an evaluation deficit. We just learned this week 
in a provocative paper in The Lancet that malaria mortality has been actually twice as large as previously estimated, with 1.2 million deaths a year. Clearly, our existing health metrics, vital registration, epi-surveillance, are not good enough. We do not have a good estimate of the number of HIV infections that have been prevented globally by prevention programs. If we knew how much HIV prevention we are actually achieving with our prevention efforts, we would surely come to two conclusions. First, each HIV infection preventing is costing far more than it should. Why? Because our programs are choosing inefficient mixes of interventions, targeting them at the wrong populations, and managing their implementation poorly. And second, we're not investing enough. Um, clearly, our currently inefficient global prevention efforts more than pay for themselves in future averted costs of treatment. Investment in prevention is not only cost-effective, but also cost-saving. The final deficit that I would like to highlight is a delivery deficit. To turn the corner of the HIV epidemic, we need to make better use of the full range of prevention options that are already available to us. We need support for the delivery of combination prevention. It includes safe male circumcision, prevention of mother-to-child transmission, and other prevention programs that have been shown to work, such as integrating HIV with family planning to reduce unintended pregnancies, as you mentioned, among HIV-positive women. Obviously, it means combination prevention alongside effective treatment. So, to finish, what reforms would be desirable in the near future? I think we need to radically ramp up our prevention efforts by increasing funding for research, evaluation, and combination prevention at scale. I'm certainly hoping that the U.S. Congress, Congress will reauthorize its already generous contribution to global AIDS efforts through PEPFAR in 2013. But I also think it is time for other rich nations in Europe, Asia, where's China, and the Middle East to step up to the plate and help address some of the deficits of the global health architecture. We have accomplished a lot in a short period of time, but to paraphrase Mahatma Gandhi, it is the difference between what we're doing and what we're capable of doing that will eventually make the difference in population and global health challenges. Thank you. I want to thank Jaime for using HIV AIDS as a very useful sort of paradigm in looking at the huge problem of voluntary family planning and population growth. It's something that's very close to my heart. In the early 1980s, I heard about this disease with a funny name, which was transmitted by sexual intercourse. And it didn't seem to me to be rocket scientists to acknowledge that sex is rather popular, 
and I had a sneaking suspicion that not everybody was monogamous. So I said, this is going to be a big problem. There was huge denial to begin with, which I know Jaime also saw. It was very difficult to get things moving. When I was running Family Health International, we had the first USAID money to control AIDS in Africa. That money that I had per year at the beginning of the epidemic, when we could have made a huge difference, was equivalent to one day's expenditure internationally on HIV AIDS today. We have to act with urgency when we can have leverage on a problem. And I think what Jaime has shown us, if we take the HIV example and apply it to family planning, we've got to have urgency, we've got to get away from denial, and we're not making enough investment. And we have to make that investment immediately, or it will be hugely costly down the road, as it was with HIV, and as it is with HIV. Our calculations, which we've given to John for the uh, working group, is that for about $10 billion a year, you could, through voluntary family planning, push the global population trajectory near to the 6 billion mark at the end of the century. If you don't do anything, you've got 15.8 billion. That is probably one of the most important or the most important decision in international health. And we have to make that investment. We have to use the evidence base that we're building and that Andor has just shown us to make that investment. We have to get away from denial we have to understand the need for urgency, and I think Zuru will be talking about that after coffee. And we have to be prepared to make the investment. So there is time for two or three questions. Please keep them brief, because more subtle comments you can do in the afternoon. Anybody have any questions before the coffee break? Don't be shy. This is a controversial topic. You don't have to agree with what people are saying. Or are you all in need of coffee? There's one person here. Is there a microphone? Can you come down here? If you could introduce yourself. Okay, Sir Whitney, Institute for Population Studies in Berkeley. Where is that $10 billion going to come from? Good question. I think it has to come from exactly the place the HIV money came from. It has to come from the international community. The Gates Foundation has got to give more money in that. Uh, we as taxpayers have to give more. In relation to the world's problems, it's peanuts. It's, it's a rounding figure in the world GDP. So we haven't got to be afraid of it. It's not that we're asking us all for our taxes to go up. We won't notice this. Currently, everyone in this room, if you're a taxpayer, gives about the cost of a hamburger per year to international family planning. All I'm asking is that you're prepared to pay the cost of two hamburgers per year to international family planning. So we want to keep to time. Let's thank our stellar panellists and, uh, and Sir John. We've got a 15-minute coffee break, I think. And so please be back here in 15 minutes for the next session. It'll be just as exciting. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.